Amen to that. Let's pray together. Father, as we now turn our attention to the firm foundation we have in your word that has been given to us, I pray, O oh God, that you would move our hearts, our minds, our will, our attitude, everything about us to incline, to yield, and to respond and to obey your word, O oh God. It is life to us. You have granted to us the words of life, the bread of life, and we thank you for it. It is how each of us can grow in the Lord and be strengthened and be healthy spiritually and uh, be in, in a solid relationship with you. So God, I pray this morning that you would help us as we um, encounter your word. May it be fresh to us in our hearts, in our lives, and may we be eager, O oh God, to obey you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, I want to give a shout out this morning to uh, Pastor Kelvin's DC Discipling Community and Pastor Jim's Discipling Community who are meeting across uh, at 301. Thank you for that. We're trying to, uh, each of our discipling communities will be asked, uh, so, so watch for that, asked to spend a service over at uh, 301 so we can free up space here um, for people who need to be here, especially people with, with children here. We like to keep them in the building right here, so thanks for that sacrifice. That's what we do, that's who believers are. We sacrifice for one another, right? Lots of enthusiasm. <laughs> Thank you, Lisa, I appreciate that. Was it Lisa? Thank you. <laughs> we sacrifice for one another. The Lord has sacrificed for us. The incredible sacrifice, surely we can make a few sacrifices in our lives for him. Well, what does the church do? We're back at this, sermon number 11. What does the church do? Very simple answer, baptizes believers. That's what churches do. In fact, I, can, I could wrap up the sermon in about uh, three or four minutes this morning, but that's not uh, what I'm planning to do. But you'll understand, <laughs> you'll understand when, I, when I say uh, why I could do that uh, when you hear this. Because I asked the question, what did Jesus do? Mark chapter 1, turn in your Bibles please. Mark chapter 1, as we launch into this theology of baptism. Mark 1, and we're going to be reading 4 through 11. Now, it uh, begins with uh, a discussion on John the Baptist, not John the disciple. Verse 4, and so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. What did Jesus do? He got baptized. 
What did Jesus say? Turn back in your Bibles one page or scroll back on your electronic device to Matthew 28, verse 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Sermon completed. What did Jesus do? What did Jesus say? What should you do? I'll, I'll indulge you with a little more information than that in the event you need more. But let's, let's, uh, let's take a, a journey this morning, uh, shall we, into the uh, oft-times murky world of baptism throughout Christianity and try to understand what's going on. As you all know, the world of Christianity is divided into multiple denominations. And denominations tended to divide on the basis of some sort of priority that was near and dear to a group of people and some certain leader. And that leader split a group of people off and started a denomination. Not a lot of merit to what has been done over the years in all of this splitting. And so you might be wondering, well, if, if denominations tended to divide over a priority, then I guess we're called Baptists because of the priority of baptism. Wrong. But let me just go back a little bit and share with you. For instance, Methodists. They're called Methodists because they specialize in method. The systematic discipling of people. It's method, it's, it's, they're Methodists. Presbyterians are called Presbyterians because of presbyteros, a particular form of church government, elder-led. Pentecostals are called Pentecostals because of the priority of the Spirit of God, Spirit-centered. Seventh-day Adventists are called that because they worship on Saturday, the seventh day. Anglicans are called Anglicans because it's the church of Anglo, England, or sometimes in the U.S. called Episcopal because of Episcopos, another form of government, church government. Reformer, Reformed church is called Reformed because of covenantal theology, family salvation. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And Baptists are called Baptists because... No, not because, in fact, Baptists, we were, we were named Baptists by our, uh, by our enemies, those who opposed us 400 years ago. These are the baptizers. It was this, a scornful statement. Uh, it was a pejorative statement. We gained our name not because we prioritized baptism, Quite frankly, what Baptists have always done is prioritized a Bible-centered church. That's who Baptists are. Baptism just happens to be part of a Bible-centered church practice. So we need to understand that, that in fact, our name was gained not by... We, we're, we, are, we prioritize scriptural church. 
And that's why we're taking, we're taking this time through this season to rehone our skills, our biblical skills, our biblical information on the matters of the church, ecclesiology. What is the church? This, we are just demonstrating to you what we believe as Baptists is found in the scriptures concerning church. How important is this matter of baptism? Well, a young couple by the name of Adoniram and Anne Judson. Name familiar to anybody? Missionaries. Boarded the caravan ship in, Sal- in the harbor of Salem, Massachusetts in 1812, February 19th, 1812. Headed for India which began the first wave of international mission in the U.S. William Carey had already established an outpost, a missionary outpost in Calcutta, India. There's some pictures for you today. The Carey Baptist Church, founded by William Carey, the first missionary, uh, modern missionary out of England, who founded this church in 1812. 18, he actually built it in 1809. And um, um, one of the great privileges of my life is preaching in that church and teaching in that church on several occasions. The historic church in Calcutta, India. They set out on ship and in Adniram. Adniram was a scholar in Greek. He had studied at Andover Seminary, was well taught in Greek. And the, and the uh, journey to India from the harbor of Salem, Massachusetts was four months, can you imagine? Four months from Salem, Massachusetts to Calcutta, India on a ship. During that four months, he studied the scriptures intensively in preparation for missionary work. In particular, the New Testament, because he was well-versed in Greek. By the time that they arrived in Calcutta, India, Adoniram Judson and his wife Anne had become thoroughly convinced they needed to be baptized. They had been sprinkled as infants and were followers of Christ, but in studying intensively the scriptures, they became convicted, and on September 6, 1812, On their arrival, uh, shortly after their arrival in Calcutta, they were baptized in the next slide should show, um, nope, go back one slide. That shows the baptistry right there. I'm standing at the baptistry. You see those planks of wood in the floor? That is the historic baptistry in Cary Baptist Church by missionary William Ward where Adoniram and Ann Judson were baptized by immersion as a public testimony of their faith in Jesus Christ. Luther Rice, their friend, followed them shortly after and was baptized November 1st, 1812. And then, of course, before that, John Owen and that historic plaque, of course, is still, uh, st- still is in the church of, of the Judsons. John Owen, in 1783, baptized as an infant, was rebaptized by immersion after he was convinced and convicted of the scriptures. The story goes that many Congregationalists were um, under the preaching of George Whitfield, at this, who was 
an Anglican uh, pastor who um, founded the uh, Methodist denomination and was buried in a Presbyterian church. In that, <laughs> so Anglican pastor founded Methodism, was buried in a Presbyterian church, preaching to Congregationalists in these great revivals, and they they told him about the uh, many converts of uh, to Christ who were uh, leaving uh, Whitfield to be baptized by immersion because he was a sprinkler, and um, he said he it's it said that he said um, I'm I'm greatly uh, excited to hear about their fervor uh, in the faith, but I regret to be informed that so many of the chickens have now turned into ducks. So. Um, <laughs> Baptism has had an interesting history. So what does the Bible have to say about baptism? Well, it is the initiatory right into the Christian church, as Schreiner and Wright correctly write, and the most visible representation of the relationship a believer has with Christ and his church. Listen to me. And the most visible representation, the most visible representation of the relationship a believer has with Christ and his church and of all the other rites and rituals that take place in church, it is the Christian practice that most, has most resulted in persecution and martyrdom. Of all the things we do, of all the things the Christian church has done, of all the rites and ceremonies that a Christian church has done, baptism by immersion has engendered the most persecution and martyrdom in Christianity. and is fast becoming a most endangered of all Christ's commands among those who are of late classifying it as a of secondary place in the drama of salvation. Baptism is losing its luster in evangelicalism. It's a defining mark that we do not belong any longer to this world, but we belong to Christ. It's an outward sign appointed by Scripture, not by the Baptist denomination. It's an outward sign appointed in Scripture by which we make our faith visible and is a supreme occasion, according to Beasley Murray, for confessing faith in the gospel. Those who, by the way, have already been baptized by the Spirit. Because John mentions in Mark chapter 1 verse 8 that Jesus will baptize us in the Holy Spirit. And then water baptism is that sign and symbol, outward sign of an inward conviction of our hearts. And of the fact that we have already been baptized by the Holy Spirit. Now... There's great debate as to whether it's just a sign and a symbol or if there's more to it than that. It's very difficult, to be honest, to, uh, as a human being, without the clear instruction of Scripture, to make any statements with respect to what God is up to in baptism. But because God makes such a big deal of baptism and the Lord's table... I feel underqualified to suggest that all it is is a symbol and a sign. I think there's a lot more going on than that. And, and so let me be clear, it may be more than that, but it is not less. 
And we must do no less than the least in making our faith visible. I'm speaking to fellow Christians today. If you belong to Jesus Christ, I want you to hang on every word of this teaching this morning. You need to listen. You need to hear. If you've been baptized, this will be a great joy to your heart. If you have not been baptized, I hope the Holy Spirit will convict you immensely today. By the way, to those in, in, our, in our extended denominational families who think that baptism is a replacement of circumcision in the New Testament, it's absolutely not. Circumcision is a rite of the Old Testament, a sign of promise. Baptism is a sign of fulfillment. The two are not the same at all. They're not a replacement. You hearing me? Circumcision was a rite and a ritual of promise, the promise of the New Testament covenant. Baptism is a sign of the fulfillment of the New Testament covenant. They are not, it is not a replacement. Otherwise, baptism becomes a promise. A promise of what? We've already received everything that we've been promised in Christ. It is the fulfillment of the promise. That's the problem with infant baptism. Infant baptism becomes a promise, not fulfillment. Baptism was intended always to be fulfillment, not a promise. But we'll talk more about that. So what about then the meaning and the mode or the way of baptism? For certain, it should be central to our liturgy. That's why, again, baptismal tanks in Baptist churches in Cary Church, right at the center. That, well, it's gone now. The picture's gone now. But, but you need to know that the pulpit is right behind where I was standing, right back behind where I was standing. You've got the pulpit, and then right in the center, right, right where where our sisters are here in the front is the baptismal tank right in the floor and the Lord's table central God's word central the table central the baptism central to the liturgy of the Bible-centered church of Jesus Christ so we keep ours in the center here I'm not a big fan of these churches that have them up there in the wall. I know some people do. You're looking up there in the wall. We don't have our baptistry up there in the wall. But some of the big churches, oh, they, you know, they don't want to mess around with the front of the church and all this stuff, so they tuck it up in the wall. I, it, look, I'm not going you know, to lose fellowship over it or anything like that. But, but um, you know, I had, a, I had a say in the design of, um, of a, uh, um, a new worship center that we did in Chatham when I was pastor there. And they allowed me to have two things I really wanted. One was an atrium in the waiting room. And uh, it, was, it was beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's glass. You know, when you come to the church and, and you're waiting to speak to a pastor, whatever, you get to sit in this, this nice atrium. And, uh, and the second, but the most important thing to me was I wanted the baptistry not even tucked back in there. I wanted it out and so the baptistry in Emmanuel Baptist Church in Chatham sits out. It comes, it extends out into, and the, and the choir sings around the baptistry. And because a baptistry needs to be central to the Bible teaching church. I, I'm good with this. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm good with this. It's still in the center. I like it. But if I designed it, it would be different. Um, so what about, the, what about the meaning and the mode of baptism? And the meaning is the rite of commitment. First of all, it's an act of identification with Christ. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. I want you guys to slow the clock down up there today. That's your assignment, Mike. 
You know how the Lord made the sun. Actually, the shadows move backwards. That's what I'm looking for. Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and 5, verse 3 to 5. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. This act of baptism is an act of identification with Christ. You and I now belong to Jesus Christ, not through baptism, but through our salvation, being baptized by the Holy Spirit into the church, and then the sign of that in water baptism. We are identified with Christ as an act of radical obedience, a renunciation of the things of this world, and a specific promise to be loyal and follow Christ all the days of our life as he strengthens us and enables us. It's a transference of ownership. Because in the book of Acts, Acts 2.38, Acts 8.16, Acts 10.48, Acts 19.5, we are baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. There's a transfer of ownership. You no longer belong to yourself. You've been bought by a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And baptism symbolizes this transference of ownership. I belong to Christ. Every day, get up and think about that. Get up and label yourself. Every single day, I belong to Jesus I belong to Jesus, and, and go out in the street, I belong to Jesus. We may have lost, the, the, lost sight of the heart of that privilege of who we really are. We belong to Jesus, we don't belong to this world. We are identified with Christ. It's an act of purification, symbolizing not only the forgiveness of sins, but the empowerment to be freed from sin. Let's look at verse six of Romans chapter six. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. We are symbolizing in this act of baptism, this washing of purification, that we no longer have to sin, praise God. We've been released from that. We've been set free from that by what Christ has done for us. It's a decisive transition from an old way of life to a new way of life. In the, in the ancients, they used to walk into the baptistry with a black garment on, uh, symbolizing the, the carting of sins into, and they, they would remove the garment and would come out of the baptistry and wear a white garment. That's why some people were not enamored with that form of baptism because there was a momentary uh, change of clothing, shall we say. And um, it had to be done very, very deftly. And, and, but it was a high symbol of what was taking place in purification. I, I like, symbolically, we are bringing people into the baptistry and they turn and go back out. They come in one way, they turn and symbolically go out, symbolizing repentance. Going this way, living for myself and my sin, I turn, I am baptized, I 
I move out of the baptistry, raised to new life to live in Christ, no longer a slave to sin. Praise the Lord. Ananias said to the Apostle Paul when Paul finally came to conversion in Acts 2, or 22, sorry, verse 16, get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Can you imagine Ananias and the boldness of him? So, and, and then finally, it, it's, a, it's an incorporation into, into his one body. It's a serious and sacred act of incorporation into the visible community of faith. How do we know this? In Acts chapter 2, um, in verse uh, 41, it states there that um, those who... Uh, received his message, were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Baptism is an incorporation into the body of Christ. It is a, it, it's, it's, uh, the, the work of salvation is symbolized at baptism. It confirms the realities of salvation in time and space. It doesn't create salvation. It confesses salvation. It celebrates salvation it confirms salvation, according to Stanley Grenz in his book, The Theology for the Community of God. So when is the right time and right way? What's the right time to be baptized and what's the right way to be baptized? This has fallen into great debate. Both the right way and the right time. It's caused great division in the Christian church. Christian church, I'll put in italics. Um, I entitled this sort of section The Stain of the Augustinian Error, The Reformer's Circle of Perpetual Salvation, and the stain on a Strain on a United Practice of Baptism. We are very divided in Christianity. It began early, around the third century, when Cyprian, the then bishop of Tunisia, or uh, in Tunisia, the North African bishops in particular, started this uh, method of baptism that was unknown to the early church. And that was the sprinkling of infants with water. It was carried on by Augustine. And by the way, not everything Augustine taught or did was right. Carried on by Augustine, particularly in a paper that he wrote which has caused no end of problems for the church, called, the, the, called baptism washes away the stain of original sin, 400 AD, thereabouts. The reformers, Luther and Calvin, did nothing to fix this. For the next 1,200 years, the mode of baptism, the way of baptism was by sprinkling infants. And you need to follow along with me because there's a little bit of church history I need to dig into here for us to understand why we are the way we are. It has nothing to do with the Bible whatsoever. It has everything to do with man's decisions. Pragmat, pragmatism, statism, church and state not being separate. Luther said this in 1528. Now listen to this, this is bizarre. Were child, he meant infant baptism, now wrong, God would certainly not have permitted it to continue so long. 
nor let it become so universally and thoroughly established in all Christendom. I can't imagine Luther making a more absurd statement, particularly him being a reformer. I mean, on the one hand, for thousands of years, a certain way of church was being done, which he absolutely objected to. Why didn't he use the same logic and say, if God permitted this for all of these years, who am I to change it? It's just, it's just you know, when you start doing stuff outside of the Bible, you become stupid. That's, the, that's just simply put. You, you, you lose your mind. I mean, the many heresies of the medieval church are legend. Why wouldn't he have said, well, if, if works salvation was wrong, God surely would have stopped it. Well, get, then, then it goes further. Here's what Calvin said around the same time. For you Calvinites out there, of which I tend to persuade toward, He wasn't all right either. He was wrong a lot. He writes this, the children of believers, now you got to listen to this. Did I put this on the screen? Yeah, I did. Okay, look at this. The children of believers are baptized not in order that they who were previously strangers to the church may then for the first time become children of God, but rather that because by the blessing of the promise they already belong to the body of Christ, they are received into the church with this solemn sign. In other words, because their parents are believers, by infant baptism they are too. And not only that, are admitted into the church. And this theology of covenant theology, called covenant theology, reform theology, has continued to this day. Both Lutheranism with Luther and and Calvinism with Calvin. Now, we're, what happened? In, in, in all of this taking place, the problem is for 1,200 years from... Once Constantine became... was converted to Christianity, the state, the government of Europe started with the emperors, became indivisibly tied to the church. So you had a state church in Europe for 1,200 years. And baptism became a rite of passage for citizens of Europe. In other words... To be baptized was not only to symbolize loyalty to God, but more importantly, was to symbolize loyalty to the state. And Luther and Calvin and the magisterial reformers did nothing to change that. Our forefathers, however, died in the thousands to take the Reformation to its rightful place. I want to get to that in a minute. And the state appointed clergy for all those years. So it was to the benefit of the clergy who were employed by the state to not rock the boat. So when the King James Version of the Bible, for instance, was translated in 1611, they did not translate the word baptized correctly. They decided not to translate it because it was a political quagmire 
the clergy of the time would lose their positions. Charles the Great, some of you have maybe heard of him, maybe you've heard of him as the name Charlemagne. Charles the Great. He was called Charles the Great because he almost single-handedly united Western Europe. In the era of 747 to 814 AD, he made this edict. If people didn't have their children baptized, they would be put to death by the state. So for, for 1,200 years, we had people baptized, allegedly, who were not Christians. That's why you had, a, that's why you had such a, a, a wicked situation in Europe for all of those years. So how, how do I understand, how does Rick Baker understand the time that someone should be baptized? Should they be baptized as an infant? Well, here's what I understand the Bible, the scriptures would teach. When a person can understand salvation enough to receive Christ by faith, one. Two, and can explain it to an elder. Three, and can testify to the church. Four, and can understand the meaning of obey, the urgency of obedience they are qualified to be baptized. They must understand salvation and have received Christ. They must be able to tell an elder, explain to an elder their salvation. They must be able to testify to the church, which you see testimonies in the, in the, in the Baptist, baptistry. And they must understand what it means to obey. Because the urgency of obedience, as I read the scriptures, should be the most important factor in determining the timing of baptism. When should you be baptized? Upon your salvation. In obedience to Jesus Christ. There's an urgency of obedience. What is the right way? What does it mean? What's the right way? Well, the meaning of baptizo, the meaning is to dip. It always has mean that, it always will mean that, because the Greek word baptizo is frozen in time. It's not a progressive word. It's frozen in time and space. It's what it meant. It meant to dip, it meant to immerse, it meant to die. By the way, you'll be interested to know this, that Calvin acknowledged the word meant immerse, even though he did not immerse, he sprinkled infants. Calvin acknowledged the word meant immerse because he couldn't argue with the Greek. But he concluded the mode uh, 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 was of no consequence. Which is a shocking admission considering the precision with which he sought to reform soteriology or the doctrine of salvation. Much ugliness ensued because of Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli who were the great reformers. They have to answer to Christ for it. They wouldn't break with the state. That's why Baptists have such a strong aversion to connection to the state. We are separate from church. There's a separation of church and state. There's a high ideology of, of Baptist denomination. They wouldn't break with the state to embrace sola scriptura, even though they claimed that's what they were intending to do. 
Baptism by immersion was endorsed by the 1644 London Confession. It is a requirement of fellowship Baptist churches. And so we practice it. The right way is first the meaning, the, the descriptions in the New Testament. Descriptions all over the New Testament are things like Jesus came up from the water. They didn't go and get water and bring it to people. People went to the water in the scriptures. So always lots of water, always river, all of that kind of discussion. You can imagine the ecstatic moment in this pastor's life when I made my first pilgrimage to the ancient land of Turkey where the ancient sites of, of, of churches are still more visible. Israel is, is less visible. Turkey is, is so open and so visible. You can imagine this young pastor's ecstatic moment when I went to visit the ancient sites, the ancient church sites, and I got to see these baptistries. Give me the pictures, guys. This is the baptistry of the church at Laodicea. Now, that's not a baptismal sprinkling font, is it? Folks, you get in that baptistry and you are immersed. What about the one in Ephesus? There's the one in Ephesus. The church of St. John in Ephesus. You see us standing around there? You have steps down and steps out. That's the baptistry, the ancient baptistry in Ephesus. It's still available for you to see. So, there you have it that the archaeological evidence is not sprinkling fonts, but the archaeological evidence that matches the scriptures in these early church ancient ruins is a immersion baptistry, not infant baptism. Number three, we have to ask the question, which illustrates and symbolizes the theology most? In Paul's discussion in Romans chapter 6, and verse 4, Paul makes it clear here uh, when he says, he's got to be thinking in his own mind when he pictures the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and then he pictures that when, when he's talking about the, the word baptize in Romans 6, he's saying, therefore, we were buried. He could have said we were crucified with Christ because he said that other places. But here he's talking about baptism. He's saying we are buried with him through baptism. It pictures the theology of the salvation reality that our lives are now buried with Christ in full identity and we are raised again to new life in, in commemoration of his resurrection and our resurrection to new life. We live a resurrection life. And this is, is pictured best in uh, uh, baptism by immersion. Well, I'd, I'd love to tell you more about church history. I'll just, I'll just quickly say about in terms of the import, importance of, of baptism. You're, you're going to hear language out there, lots of secondary importance and all that kind of stuff. And, and church, evangelical churches are losing their interest and passion in baptism, saying, it doesn't matter. You, you know, you're saved anyway. It doesn't really, what does this really matter, uh, this whole going through all of this baptism? Listen, it, our forefathers, the Anabaptists, Again, the pejorative term because they were called baptizes again, who were baptized as infants because of the law in Europe, were martyred by the thousands. The Roman Catholic Church for three years martyred, at the time of the Reformation, martyred for three years thousands of people who, who uh, uh, were baptized by immersion as believers. 
In fact, in, in Zurich, the law was, in Zurich, Switzerland, the law was this. Anyone baptized as an adult must be put to death by drowning, fire, or sword. Uh, one of our forefathers, of course, in a, in a Mennonite uh, vein, Felix uh, Muntz, chose drowning rather than renounce his baptism. And the story goes that, he, that as he was being uh, had a stick through, through uh, he was tied by his feet, tied by his hands, and a stick through, through his feet and his hands, and he was being carted through the streets. They had to play, the state had to play music, uh, had, a, had to have a band playing to drown out the singing of the Christians who were singing victorious songs while Felix Muntz went to be drowned in the river. And his mother called out in the crowd, urging her son to go to death rather than renounce his faith in Jesus Christ. Can you imagine? And it wasn't the pagans who were killing these brothers and sisters. It was the alleged church of Jesus Christ. The Roman Catholic Church, the Calvin Church, the Luther Church, the Zwingli Church were killing our forefathers and sisters. I don't want to get to the punchline too soon, but how dare us? How dare us to call this a secondary importance? It is a command of Christ. Go make disciples. As Carson writes, one of the activities that characterize disciple making is baptism. If you're making disciples, you baptize them. It's essential to Christian discipleship. You simply aren't making disciples if you aren't first baptizing people. It's how disciples are be, uh, will be made. That's what the, the, the scriptures teach us. In Peter's first major sermon, his church formation sermon in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, what does he say? He commands baptism. Repent, each of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Following the command of Christ himself, his sermon, his first major sermon is a command to be baptized. John the Baptist preached repentance and forgiveness. He preached a baptism of the cross. He preached a baptism of the Holy Spirit and then a baptism in water. It's always, according to Ephesians 4, 5, the epistles, Paul, Paul writes, Christians are characterized by one baptism. Baptism by the Spirit first into the body of Christ, symbolized by water baptism. Not the other way around, ever. Unbaptized Christians are unknown in the New Testament. Okay, so there was one exemption, the thief on the cross. That's it. In the ancient church, the primitive church, an unbaptized person wouldn't have been recognized as a believer. In the scriptures, over and over again in Acts, so many scriptures, I've written them down for you, faith and baptism are repeat, repeatedly connected Baptism and the Holy Spirit are repeatedly connected. If you want to take away baptism, you've got to take away faith. If you want to take away baptism, you've got to take away the Holy Spirit. Because they're connected in the scriptures. So how do we wrap this up? Jesus said, go make disciples. Baptizing them. The church of Jesus Christ consists of people who by faith have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and have publicly affirmed that confession by obeying the command of Jesus to be baptized. It's a serious and sacred rite 
of act of incorporation into the body of Christ, into the bride of Christ, the community of faith. Historians record this. Now listen to me. Historians record that more people were martyred for their convictions about believer baptism than all the people who were martyred during the first two centuries of Roman persecution. Why? Why? Because they insisted on a saved church membership. And they were willing to die for it. And baptism is a public testimony of authentic salvation whereby one confesses that they truly have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Infants can't do that. And you fill your church with people who don't know the Lord. Which is why we have churches today of people who deny the scriptures. But they were baptized as infants. Does that mean everybody who was baptized as an infant is a lost unsaved person? No, that's not what I'm saying. That's not even close to what I'm saying. The Bible teaches baptism very clearly. I don't think it's hard to understand. And when you mess with it, you mess things up. So my question to you this morning, wherever you are, have you received the grace of salvation through the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit? Today is the day of salvation. And if so, have you obeyed Christ's command to be baptized? When I think about church, church history, when I think about what our forefathers paid, whether in the early Roman persecution or in the Reformational persecution, when I think about it, and here we are today in Canada free to come to church, albeit with numbers restricted, but we'll have as many services as we need for everyone to freely come to church. You can freely come to church. Without hassle or persecution, you can obey Christ through baptism with the exception of certain ethnic families who would be a tremendous cost, and I understand, but for the most part, it costs nothing to any of us. And we hesitate and him and haw about baptism Let me say this with a, I hope, a, a sympathetic and, and a kind heart, but an urgent heart. If you're having trouble hemming and hawing about publicly testifying to your faith in Jesus Christ, then I don't believe you actually have faith in Jesus Christ. Because anyone who knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior obeys him and the first act of obedience is to identify with him to be incorporated into the church I pray that we will take to heart what the scriptures teach our father I thank you for your grace to us your patience your kindness but Lord your your word is a hammer on an anvil it's a fire it's a double-edged sword Oh, Lord, I pray today that the word of God will cut through to the marrow of people's lives and that we will obey the Lord in this matter. 
of publicly testifying to our loyalty and commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and to his bride, the church of Jesus Christ. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.